the son who ran off to rebel against his father ran to rebel through lawlessness. But there was another son who stayed and rebelled against his father through law keeping. Either way, listen, Jesus comes and takes our place. Jesus died for the unrighteous and he died for the self-righteous. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church podcast. My name is Pilgrim Benham. I'm the lead pastor of Shoreline Church. And today on the podcast, we will be studying the passage of scripture where Jesus meets Pontius Pilate. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 18, and I hope you enjoy this message. And uh, today what I wanna do is start off uh, today's study with a quote from the Apostles' Creed. So on the screen, you'll see a small quote from the Apostles' Creed. Uh, our elders, actually, this year, it's our goal to memorize some of the creeds, the early Christian creeds. Uh, and in the one section of the Apostles' Creed, it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under, and here's the name we're going to look at today, Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. Today we're going to look at Pontius Pilate. Now many Catholics who make their pilgrimage to Rome will pay a visit to a place called the Scyla Sancta, or uh, it's easier to pronounce it this way, the Sacred Staircase or the Sacred Stairs. I think we have a picture of it. Levi, let's put that up. And this is also known as the Judgment Seat of Pilate. Around 400 AD, it was said that they actually took up the, the carving of the stones and they, uh, the staircase and they moved it to Rome. And we're not sure if this marble set of stairs is the exact set, but it's possible. And um, Roman Catholic superstition gives kind of a special merit and grace to the one who is a devout worshiper at the sacred staircase. In fact, devout Catholics believe that uh, this is, of course, superstition, but they believe that God would forgive the sins of anyone who would ascend the, the, uh, the staircase on your knees. In fact, they said you would actually receive uh, a thousand uh, years uh, in indulgence from a thousand years of penance if you were to do that or forgive all your sins. Okay? So, the, uh, of course, great reformer Martin Luther, when he was a monk, he made his pilgrimage from Germany to Rome and he began to ascend these very steps. Uh, and about halfway up on his knees, believing, of course, that this would uh, bestow him some special forgiveness, about halfway up, he started thinking, uh, is this even possible? Is this even real? And before he got to the top of the steps, according to some historians, he heard in his mind the verse, the just shall live by faith. It was in this moment. It was in this location. And at that moment, he stood up to his feet and he walked uh, the rest of the way down. These are, according to legend, the same steps that Jesus ascended to stand before Pontius Pilate. Uh, and the text that we're going to study this morning is the very section of Scripture where this took place in the Gospel. Jesus meeting Pontius Pilate. And you really can't get uh, two more distinct or different types of rulers. You have in one corner the ruthless and truthless uh, king really a, a lesser idea than even a king, but he's a man-fearing ruler of Rome, and he sits on a throne with a lot of faltering judgment. And yet before him stands one bound, wearing a purple robe uh, and adorned in a crown of thorns, and yet the one who stands before him to receive judgment from him is the very one who, Scripture says in Colossians, is the one uh, through whom and by whom all authority, all thrones, all dominion, all power... Uh, came through. And it's all from and through and for him. And, and here he stands before uh, this uh, lesser king, Pilate. So we're going to be looking at this section of scripture. And if you've been here for our series, Road to the Cross, we've been looking at the last day of Jesus's life. Uh, and, and one thing that we're doing differently in this series is that we're actually reading all three of the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke in what, how they describe the Passion Week, or the last day, if you would, of Jesus' life and what he endured at Calvary. And last week we saw the trial, you guys know why I'm doing this in quotes, because it was really a mock of a trial, the unjust trial before Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin. And uh, we saw that these 
religious leaders had a tough time producing any valid reason, any capital offense to put Jesus to death. Eventually, they come up, uh, they come up with blasphemy, and they send Jesus guilty of this charge to Pilate, the Roman ruler of Israel. And so whether Jesus was offending God or offending Caesar, in the minds of the Jews, either way, he's got to be put to death. They'll stop at nothing to ensure that he's not just punished for making himself to be the son of God, but that he'd be put to death. And so we're going to see at what lengths they'll go to today. And we'll see a, a really uh, kind of struggle internally uh, happening within Pilate and why a little bit of a historical backstory of why Pilate was so fickle about Jesus. And so no matter how he rules, they're not going to give in quietly or quickly. So if you guys know what we're doing, we're going to actually not start in the Gospel of John, though that's what we're studying. We're going to start way back in Matthew. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 1. Matthew 27, 1. And I mentioned this the last few weeks. If you're not used to a large section of Scripture reading, or maybe you've been a part of a church where they don't read Scripture, they just put it on the screen, this might be a little bit new for you. I hope you have a Bible or access to an English Standard Version nearby. Uh, if not, borrow your neighbors, all right? So, uh, Matthew 27, starting in verse 1. It says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. You can see the irony here. So they took count with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. That for, uh, therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Look at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave, them, he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into uh, the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. 
All right, look with me now at Mark chapter 15. So let's turn to Mark, or swipe to Mark chapter 15. One book to the right, Mark chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together the, the uh, crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. All right, let's turn to Luke, Luke's Gospel, starting in verse, uh, chapter 23. Luke 23. Luke 23, again starting in verse 1. It says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard, or learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I've found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Wow. If you would, turn with me to John's Gospel now, the 18th chapter. 
And what I want to do is just read the first few verses, and um, we're going to look at Pilate for a moment, get a little bit of a historical backstory uh, on why Pilate was so fickle. Why was he stuck? Okay, look at John 18, starting in verse 28. John 18, 28. We'll just read a few verses. It says, Then they, the Jewish leaders, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And verse 32 says, This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, I want you to draw your attention to verse 29 uh, to the name Pilate. Circle that, highlight it. Who was Pilate? Pilate was the uh, prefect of Judea. Does that help anyone? He was the prefect or governor of Judea from about AD 26 to about AD 36, about a 10-year span. Pilate really had no political career in his sights until he married the granddaughter of um, Caesar Augustus. And when he did that, suddenly he married up and he had some clout. And so he then was given this assignment uh, to be the governor or the prefect of the area of Judea. Um, now, they found in 1961 in his residence in a place called Caesarea, there's the name Caesar in there. Uh, it's a coastal, beautiful little town uh, in, in Israel. Uh, and they actually found in 1961 a, a stone. I think we have a picture of it. It's called the Pilate Stone. Uh, partially broken, but there's a little inscription on it to two different names. It had the name Pontius Pilate, and it had the name Caesar Tiberius. I want you to remember that name, Caesar Tiberius. He was the Caesar at the time uh, that Pilate was assigned uh, this governorship, if you would. Uh, and so if you're wondering what did a prefect do, they did three basic things. Three things. If you want to jot these down, that'd be great. Three things that a prefect did. He was a politician. So the first thing that he did as a Roman politician was he was in charge of kind of evangelizing the area with the, the Roman way of life, with the Roman culture. He had to indoctrinate the people with the, the idea of Rome. And so that was one of his duties. Secondly, though, he was, of course, the government to maintain law and order. And the way you did that as a Roman ruler was through what's called Pax Romana. Uh, it's a Latin phrase that, that basically means a peace but peace with a sword, right? It's one of those things like, we're going to have peace in our marriage if you listen to what I say, okay? That doesn't really go well, okay? That's, that was the idea. We're going to have peace in Rome if you, if you don't disobey me, and then I have a sword to keep the peace. That's Pax Romana. That was the second thing, to maintain law and order. But the third thing was, of course, it's political. What do politicians do? Collect taxes. So that, that was the third thing, collect imperial taxes. So Pilate on the screen actually had coins made uh, that bore his inscription, so these, this is actually a, a, a small um, coin. I think that's actually the ring. But um, there are coins that were made. So um, basically, the people of Israel had a national identity. So it's not like he's going like to indoctrinate them in the Roman way of life. They were, they were already uh, fully understanding their identity. Uh, and so Roman influence was something they tolerated, but it's not something they enjoyed. It's not something they, they willingly gave into. They would never say, we want to worship Caesar. He's our king. They would never go there. They just allowed, because of the, the unrest, they, they often were fighting against it. You look at Jewish history from Josephus, they were always fighting it. Okay? Uh, and so the Pax Romana had to be maintained often with great tension between the Jews and between uh, Rome. Now, I told you to remember the name Tiberius. Okay? He was the Caesar at the time. The, the Roman emperor, and he was worshipped as God. He was worshipped as deity. Now, Tiberius had so much work to do that he gave a lot of his duties over to a man, a despicable man, who was named Lucius alias Sejanus. Sejanus. Now, Sejanus um, started desiring the throne. He wanted to be emperor. So stay with me. Sejanus wanted to be emperor, but there was a problem, Okay. Uh, the problem is Tiberius already had a son. He was the next in line. So what did Sejanus do? He seduced the son's wife. And so he seduces his wife and then basically finds a way to begin poisoning him. 
Not in one quick dose, like let's just poison him. He didn't want to be found out, so Sejanus poisoned Tiberius' son over months and months and months so that it would look like natural causes. Eventually, his plot was found out. But in the meantime, Tiberius was a little bit worrisome, so he flees to the island of Capri and basically retires. And he leaves most of his administrative duty, wondering if someone's trying to kill him, and he mistakenly leaves it in the hands of Sejanus. He thinks, I can trust him. So now Sejanus, by proxy, basically becomes the Roman emperor. Well, Sejanus hated the Jews. And so one of the policies that he enacted as soon as Tiberius retires is he goes, we're going to now, with all of our governorships, we're going to oppress and we're going to persecute the Jews. So all over the Roman Empire, including in Judea, there started becoming this heavy-handed attitude towards the Jews. And Pilate, was, he happened to be in control during this time. So there were at least three major incidents that happened during the reign of Pilate. That, that were really, really bad incidents in the life of the Jews. And I just want to real quick share with them before we get to the cross and understand why there was so much tension in Pilate's heart, okay? So the first one is called, I'll put it on the screen, the first was called the Affair of the Standards. This happened about 26 AD. And I, I, I know this is not history class, but I want to give you guys this backstory so you understand what's going on in Pilate's heart, okay? So this happened right around the beginning of Pilate's reign. And he brought in some flags, some standards that had the emperor's um, image on them, Tiberius's image, and the Jews lost it. They're like, no, 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 this is like idol worship. We cannot allow this to happen in the capital. And so they were so offended. They all show up in Caesarea, and they did one of those Occupy Caesarea movements, right? They're like, we're taking over. And they, they were like, we're, we're going to protest. We're, going, we're coming against uh, a pilot, we're not happy with this. Well, at that exact time, Sejanus was not yet in control. Tiberius was, and so Pilate backs off. Right? It wasn't, it wasn't oppressive to the Jews yet, and so he says, you know, I want to appease the crowd. I don't want my first order business to be bloodshed. So he backs off. He takes the flags down, and everyone seems to be okay. Uh, well, then about a year later, we have the second incident. This is called the, I call it the Aqueduct Fund. Okay, about 27 A.D. or so. Pilate had a huge protest in Jerusalem proper because he took temple money and he started funding an aqueduct. He wanted to bring an aqueduct, uh, build it all the way into the city. Well, in this case, when the crowd got violent, Pilate snuck some of his soldiers in with the crowd and who were dressed up pretending to be protesters, but they were Roman soldiers. And he said, wait for my cue. Uh, Josephus tells us that at the exact moment he gives the order, and all of them throw off the clothing, they're Roman soldiers, and they had clubs. They start bludgeoning all of the protesters to death. Well, that sets off a panic. The rest of them start running, and they actually trampled the rest, most of the rest of the protesters to death. It was this, it was this horrific moment uh, in the life of Israel. Uh, and so the uprising was kind of quenched, and Pilate kind of made his mark as a cruel and brutal leader. Well, Sejanus in Rome heard about it and was like, good job, that is the way we rule. Let's continue this policy everywhere, okay? Those are the two incidents, but then something changed, okay? Something changed around 31 AD. You know what happened? So on the island of Capri, Tiberius finds out what's been going on. He goes, Sejanus is the one behind all of it. He poisoned and killed my son, and so he tricks Sejanus and basically a mob kills him. A mob kills Sejanus, and so Tiberius becomes the official emperor again. And what does he do? He gets the most absolute backlash revenge that anyone has ever gotten. He says, I'm gonna take all of Sejanus's friends and allies and family and kill him. So he, on this ruthless witch hunt, Tiberius goes and kills everyone connected to Sejanus. Well, that includes the governors who were connected, including Pilate. And so there is this really tense moment around 31, 32, 33 AD where all the governors who had been connected to Sejanus but weren't yet killed were kind of on thin ice. They were kind of watching and waiting. It's not like they had Twitter back then. It's not like they had Facebook and you could see immediately like, oh, okay, the emperor's kind of upset right now. It would take months to kind of find out where you're at with correspondence. Well, then this happened. 31, 32 AD, we call it the affair of the shields. You guys still with me? So here's what happens. About a year before Jesus' trial, a year or two before, Pilate said, let's put some golden shields out in honor of who? Tiberius. Let's honor Tiberius. You really want him to know how much I like him. He knows not to put his image on the shields because that'll upset everyone, but he just puts his name. Well, even his name offends the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, and so when they come and they say, take the shields down, 
He said, no, I don't want to because I'm kind of wanting to make sure Tiberius is happy with me. Um, the Herodians sent off a letter to Tiberius protesting. Well, then Tiberius gets angry. He replies to Pilate, what are you doing? And Pilate's like, oh my gosh. So he takes the shields down. Uh, and at this point, many historians believe that if Pilate were to have one more riot, one more uprising, one more incident, then Tiberius would have his head. So that's kind of the backstory uh, as we get into this. Now, there is at least one other occasion that you can read about in Luke's Gospel, Luke 13, where it says that Pilate mixed the blood of some Galileans with their sacrifices. So this, this guy, Pilate, was a horrific, uh, violent, bloodthirsty, ruthless man. He had no problem making a point of anyone who opposed him. But because he has this political kind of like fear tactic happening from above, he is not sure where he stands with Tiberius. So he's ready to, to kind of get rid of any uprising. So notice verse 28. That's kind of the backstory. But notice verse 28. The Jews did not want to enter the home of a Gentile and, and be defiled. Well, we don't want to defile ourselves during the Passover. But think about this, guys. They're about to put to death an innocent man. Do you guys smell the irony here? If you don't smell it, I can't help you with this one. One uh, person said this on the screen. Said putrid hypocrisy. They stand upon legal defilements and care not to defile their consciences with innocent blood. What is this but to strain at a gnat and swallow a camel? You see, these religious men seek to participate in the Passover feast, and yet they're about to put to death the one whom the Passover is a shadow and type of. It's unbelievable. Do you see the irony? Uh, Pilate comes out to them and says, well, what's the accusation? And did you guys notice as we read this that they kind of give him uh, in verse uh, 30 kind of the teenager answer. Do you know what I mean by that? They give him kind of the teenager answer. Notice he says, it's kind of like when you, you as a parent say, hey, where were you last night, young man? And the teenager answer is, aren't you glad I'm not dead or in jail? Right? It's not directly answering the question. So he says, what's the charge? And they said, hey, listen, trust us. Like, we would not bring you someone who is not definitely guilty. What's he guilty of again? He's definitely guilty of something. What is it again? All right, so that's essentially what's happening. And then the response is interesting. Uh, he's like, you know, this is a Jewish religious argument. You guys, you guys deal with it. And they said, no, no, no. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. You see, at this time, the standard lawful execution by the Jews in this scenario does anyone know what it would be? You can yell it out. What would the standard execution be for blasphemy? What is it? Stoning. They would have picked up stones, but it was not lawful for them to do that. Now, later in Acts, they overcome their fear of the law, and they stoned Stephen. But in this moment, and, and remember, there were other times where they sought to stone Jesus, but because his time had not yet come, he escaped their uh, clutch. And so here, it's foretold that this would be the death, the, the means of death, not stoning. But see, according to Isaiah 53, according to Psalm 22, it had been foretold that the lamb would be slain before the foundation of the world by being pierced, by being crucified, not by stoning. Now, it's early in the morning, and Pilate was up anyway, so look at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world, or not from the world. Then Pilate, verse 37, said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said to him in the famous question, what is truth? Hmm. Now, man, there is so much here in these five verses. We could spend an entire sermon, or 20, covering these verses. But essentially, notice with me, that there are two distinct kingdoms here, right? Notice with me, Pilate's kingdom, if you'll call it that, was over Judea. And this man, Jesus, seems to be saying that he's king over all the Jews. Okay, this would have been a threat to Pilate's immediate jurisdiction, and thus this would have been a threat to Rome overall. 
So he's got to get a little more information. And this man, Jesus, who claims to be their king, he's never caused any bit of insurrection. He's never caused any bit of a riot or any, bit, any you know, sort of protest. And, and, and if Pilate did have a file on him, like governments often do on threats, if he did have a file on him, it probably may have included that incident a few days before in the temple where Jesus was kind of, you remember, he was throwing over the tables, and Pilate probably liked that. He's like, I like this guy. This guy is a, is a friendly. Um, but see, there was no imminent threat that Jesus posed, and so uh, this wouldn't have been a big issue. But, but then Jesus says, my kingdom, my kingdom's not of this world. In other words, I have a kingdom from above. I have a kingdom from above. Now, God's kingdom is something that we could, it's a subject we could spend days on, but sufficient for this morning, if you're taking note, you can circle the word kingdom. The kingdom of God, mentioned 160 times in our New Testament, um, means God's rule and reign. It doesn't necessarily mean realm, okay, though it does create a realm. It doesn't mean people, though it does create a citizenship, um, but it, it means the, the rule and reign of God. Uh, Psalm 103.19, as an example on the screen, says the Lord has established his throne, where? In the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. That word all is all-encompassing. I looked it up in the Greek. All means all. It, it encompasses everything. His kingdom rules over everything and everyone. It, his rule and reign governs all things. Uh, I like what John Piper says on this note. He says that, that he sits as king on his throne of the universe. We just sang about that. All creation uh, sings his praise. And his kingly rule, his kingdom and his reign governs all things. The basic meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible is God's kingly rule, his reign, his action, his lordship, his sovereign governance. Even today, if you've never acknowledged Jesus as Lord, Philippians 2 says, every knee one day will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. You say, well, Jesus isn't my king. Yes, he is. You may not confess it today, you will one day. And thank God for the mercies and grace of the Lord that you're here today to respond in faith to that message. But every knee will bow and everyone is submitted to the Lordship or will be one day. Jesus says here that his kingdom is not of this world. It's beyond it, it's above it, it's over it. And he says for this purpose, he was born. For what purpose? To come into the world and bear witness to the truth. And he said those on the side of truth those on the side of truth will listen to his voice. So you're here today, and you've been deceived. You've been misunderstanding the gospel. Today, he says, you're on the side of truth. You hear my voice. You're listening, uh, and you'll listen to my voice. See, guys, Jesus didn't come as a soldier, as a militant leader. He came as a teacher. See the difference? He came, his kingdom, in other words, his, he didn't expand his boundaries through war, but through truth. You guys see that? So when he says the truth here, on the side of truth, the word truth, he, what he's saying is the truth about God, the, the truth about man, the truth about creation, the truth about Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about salvation and sin and eternity and all the other great doctrines of the Christian faith. Truth incarnate is standing before this conflicted puppet politician. And all he can respond with is, well, what is truth, Right? Circle that phrase, what is truth? Okay, Pilate's response here is the trademark question of postmodernism. Postmodernism is a worldview. It's a dominant worldview today. We have secularism, but postmodernism is a dominant worldview today. And the idea of postmodernism is this question, what is truth? It's to deconstruct. It's to ask questions. It's, it's EA, one of the games uh, on the PlayStation said, EA, question everything. That's the idea behind postmodernism. Question everything. Question the way we do church. Question the way that we believe. Why do we believe that? Are you sure we believe that? It's asking these questions, which I don't think it's bad to ask a question, but the answer is the important thing. How do, what's the answer we come to? But postmodern, as a, as a worldview, uh, is just tearing down established notions and perceptions. And we live in a time where people echo Pilate's uh, his question what is truth? His creed, what is truth? Now, notice what happens next. Verse 38, the rest of the verse says, after he said, what is truth, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And John tells us that Barabbas was a robber. 
Now stay with me. Right before this, the Gospel of Luke is the only one that gets this. He explains that when Pilate finds out that Jesus is in a more immediate jurisdiction of Herod, being from Galilee, he goes, oh, oh, well, Herod can handle this. I don't want to get involved in this. So remember, he sends him, Luke tells us, we just read it, he sends him to Herod. I kind of slough off his responsibility. That's another thing government sometimes does, right? Tax people and then move someone to another jurisdiction. Anyway, so, um, so Herod here is a man by the name of Herod Antipas. His father was Herod the Great, and you could call him Herod the Not-So-Great, okay? Um, remember, this is the same Herod who put John the Baptist to death. Remember, he beheaded him when he made a vow to a beautiful dancing girl who was dancing erotically. He said, I'll give you whatever you want up to half the kingdom. Remember what she did? Her mother uh, was incredibly upset at John the Baptist for speaking truth about her sinful life. And so she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Remember that? That's this Herod. Um, the, the Herod the not-so-great. Herod the awful. And so Herod Antipas here is a despicable, contemptible partier. He wants nothing more from Jesus of Nazareth than for him to entertain him at his party, for him to do some type of a party trick. Now Spurgeon says this, there was left to Herod no feeling toward Jesus, Jesus but the craving after something new, the desire to be astonished, the wish to be amused. There sits the cunning prince, divining what the wonder will be, regarding even displays of divine power as mere showman's tricks or magician's illusions. He who answered blind beggars when they cried for mercy is silent to a prince who only seeks to gratify his own irreverent curiosity. Wow. Jesus here makes no answer. So Herod, what does he do with him? He mocks him and then he sends him back to Pilate. Now, Pilate must have believed at this point that this little dog and pony show would have, would have appeased the Jews. Like, hey, I've done kind of the official thing, and, and, and this will make them happy. This will settle it. But Mark and Luke's Gospels hint that the Jews remembered the custom, uh, that it was them initiating it, and that Pilate knew it was out of envy that they were doing this. So he kind of capitalizes on it. John says that it was more initiated by him. He says, hey, I'll release to you Barabbas, right? They had this kind of this kind of custom where at the Passover they let someone go. He goes, hey, Jesus is the perfect candidate. He's innocent. He's the perfect one to be set free. We'll, we'll, we'll flog him, we'll scourge him, and then, and then we'll mock him, and then he'll be set free. That'll appease the crowds. It's the perfect scenario. Of course he's going to pick Jesus. I mean, Barabbas had led an insurrection. He was rebellious. He had murdered some. We don't know if it was Jews or some of the Roman soldiers, but he's absolutely uh, guilty. He's absolutely going to face uh, death penalty. So this is a no-brainer, but it says that the people prevailed. Now, just as a side note, we're going to be looking at Barabbas at our Good Friday service. So we're going to be diving a little bit more into um, that idea. Uh, but as we turn to chapter 19, we're going to read this section a little faster. But as we read this, you're going to notice a big change happens, And we're going to explain why it happens when we get here. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The early readers of this knew what that meant. We'll study it next week and get a little bit of an idea of what a flogging looked like. They understood what it looked like. It doesn't go into detail. Verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now Matthew instructs us, remember that Pilate's wife had this really bad nightmare, and she comes in like, like to add insult to injury. Honey, I had a really bad dream about him. You might not want to mess with him at all. Let's just leave bygones be bygones. And so uh, it, it's one thing to execute an innocent man, right? It's one thing to execute the king of a people, but it's another thing altogether to execute someone who's claiming to be deity, all right? And so notice what Pilate does next in verse 9. He enters his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? 
right? He's getting a little nervous here. Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Can you imagine if Jesus in this moment were to say, well, actually, I'm from above. I'm from heaven. And my father, I've been telling you guys this since John chapter 3. Did you not read John 6? I've been telling you, I'm deity. I'm the son of God. Uh, right? Can you imagine? Pilate would say, okay, you know what? Never mind. He would override the Jews at this point. I don't care what you guys say. I'm not putting that guy to death. He's from heaven. Right? I don't want to get on his bad side. But see, church, do you see the incredible restraint of Jesus here? Jesus gave him no answer. Jesus had the opportunity in this moment to say, I'll say what I've been saying from the beginning. But here, because he was silent, he shows incredible submission to the Father. Listen, to guarantee his path to the cross. He did that for us. He was, he was, nothing would sway him, right? He set his face as a flint. And even in this moment, Jesus is in complete control. But look at verse 10. Here's where it changes. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Okay, so this would have been it. Okay, I want to release you. But here's where it changes. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. You circle that phrase? You're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Like they need to remind, he needs reminding from the Jews about Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, here it is. When he heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. And I want you to understand what's happening here. First, Jesus says, you don't have any authority if it weren't given to you from above. Pilate's trying to appeal to his own authority in this moment. And Jesus says, listen, Pilate, the little authority you think you have, it was given to you from above. It was granted to you by my heavenly Father. And, and though you're putting me to death unjustly and that causes you to be guilty, there is a greater guilt and there's a greater sin. And, and the ones who handed me over to you should have known better. They should have known from the law and the prophets. They should have known as they studied uh, the scriptures to find the Messiah. Uh, they would have known, they would have seen that this had to take place and they would have uh, ultimately understood it. He says, but they're guilty of a greater sin. We know all sin is an offense. It's an affront. It's rebellion. It's lawlessness to God's law. But notice here, there's a greater sin. There can be degrees of sin. Well, Pilate ultimately, in this moment, hears these words, you're not Caesar's friend. Now, I told you to circle that word, that, uh, that phrase. That's a technical term. It's a Latin phrase. Friend of Caesar. And you reserve that phrase only for administrators. Only for government officials. The idea was you were on the, the Caesar's good side. You were one of his close confidants. You were, in, you were in kind of the in crowd with the Caesar, and you didn't have to really worry about anything. But listen, if you lost that, that privilege, if you were no longer Caesar's friend, you absolutely lost your post, you could lose your Roman citizenship, and in some cases you could lose your life. When Pilate hears these words, he realizes, and the Jews know this, that, hey, we're going to send word to Tiberius. You're already on thin ice. All we have to do is send one correspondence. You're done. You're dead. Pilate, if you don't put this man to death, it's going to be you being crucified. So under the fear of what this would do to him, Pilate caves in. Look at verse 14. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It would be Friday. It was about the sixth hour. Now, this can be a little confusing. Uh, Mark's gospel tells us Jesus was crucified around 9 a.m. Okay? So what is sixth hour? Well, you have two clocks that we're following in the Gospels. We have the Roman clock, which is what we follow. We say it's 12 a.m. That's the first hour of our day. It starts at 12 a.m. The Jews would follow sunrise. So the first hour is usually 6 a.m., right? So they would say this is the first hour. So here in John's Gospel, he's following the Roman calendar. So this is 6 a.m. So what we can surmise is this takes place, he says, about the sixth hour, right? The condemnation of Jesus and then the crucifixion, it takes place between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. This is all very early in the morning. So he says to the Jews, verse 14, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, listen to this, We have no king but who? Caesar. Wow. Unbelievable. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. We have no king but Caesar. Again, what ironic 
hypocrisy. The religious leaders here, they don't want to submit their lives to the kingdom of God, to the rule and reign of Christ, but they'd rather serve and submit a Gentile pagan. And they just keep saying, away with them, just away with them, crucify them. And as we'll see next week, Jesus will be put to death, not by stoning, but by Roman crucifixion. And next week, I just ask you to prepare your hearts. It'll be a sobering look uh, as we study and take communion together, the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, before we wrap it up today, I want to spend a few moments applying this uh, sizable section of Scripture. I want to do a little bit different as we apply this today. I want to look at the various people who all intersected with Jesus here. And that's how I want to apply this section of Scripture. Uh, In this section of Scripture, there's, of course, the Jewish religious leaders, and they blindly wanted to uh, have nothing more than dismiss Jesus from their lives, just put him to death, get rid of him. I don't want Jesus in my life. You have Pilate, who seemed to believe Jesus, and yet, because of his situation, he's stuck, and he's not able to do what he senses is right. And then we have the Roman soldiers, and, and of course, they're mocking Jesus, and they're dismissing Jesus uh, before they ever heard his claims or they ever heard his teachings. They're just like, nah, I have nothing to do with that. And, and then, of course, there's Herod, according to Luke, who seeks a miracle, and he wants a sign or wonder, uh, and, and really, Jesus to him is kind of a parlor trick. Um, and, and then, of course, in this section, there's Barabbas. He's depraved, he's rebellious, he's guilty, but he receives a pardon because Jesus took his place. So I want to just for a minute apply these and kind of see ourselves, right, and and kind of understand um, this section of Scripture, apply it to us. Again, this is not about you, the Bible's not about you, but we can apply this and we can walk away and say, oh man, I can apply this to my life, man, help me Lord, let me see the gospel through this section. So I want to just for a minute do this. Number one, I want to take five moments to give applications. So if you're taking note, please jot these down, or you can take a picture of the screen. Number one, Jesus threatens our pride and self-righteous religious legalism. And I am going to use the word threatens, okay, on purpose. Like the Jewish religious leaders, you and I, and don't show your hands, right, you and I, we want to be justified by our own merit. We long to hold up our achievements, and then compare notes with one another and say, that's how I achieve righteousness. We say with our own merit the same things that the Jews said. Away with him. Away with him. I don't need him. I've got this. Whether it's pre-Christ or even in Christ, we still have this urge, this longing to uh, have no place for Jesus, but to kind of promote our own self-righteousness. And our ultimate worth in that moment is based on our record and on our performance. You know, Martin Luther held that moralism, that moralism is the default mode of the human heart. If you were to leave the human heart alone, the default mode is moralism. Now listen, if you're here today and you can believe that you can achieve righteousness apart from Christ, whatever it is, I can achieve righteousness through whatever means apart from Christ, you don't understand the gospel at all. You have no understanding of the gospel. Let me give you two verses, Galatians 2, 20 and 21. Uh, Many of us know verse 20, where it says, I've been crucified with Christ, Paul tells the Galatians. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We saw that in this text. But then the next verse, verse 21, we don't all know. It says, I do not nullify or cause to come to nothing. I don't cancel out the grace of God. Here it is. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could attain righteousness without Jesus through the law, then why did Jesus die? And that's Paul's point. You see, Jesus threatens. He absolutely obliterates our pride, our arrogance, our our self-righteous performance-based religion. And I need to say amen to that. Amen. Thank you, Lord, that you threaten that in me because I'm so tempted in Christ to come back to that place of legalism and to compare notes with others and say, well, I don't know how righteous you are, but I have my quiet time all week. Bible app tells me I'm on a streak, so I don't know about you, but I'm doing great, all right? I've got a streak happening here. I got four weeks going, all right? So I don't know. What, what is your, uh, can you show me how many hours a day you're on your Bible app, right? And, and it's, it's, Jesus threatens that. And he says, you know, at the cross, as we just sang, right, the blood of Christ, it's the only way. It's enough for me. Well, secondly, what we learn from this text is that Jesus, secondly, threatens 
are idols of career and comfort. Oh man, Lakewood Ranch, we need to hear this. He threatens our, our idols of career and comfort. It was clear from the four gospel accounts that Pilate did not think Jesus was guilty, did he? He, he knew, oh, this guy's not guilty. He knew what the religious leaders were doing. It was just through envy that they brought him to him. But who Jesus was was only causing him fear. Fear of what? Fear of losing his position. Fear of losing his status. Fear of compromising his comfort. And listen, I'll point the accusing finger and I'll point it at me. We're guilty of the same thing. We do the same thing. Like Pilate, we find ourselves in a place of compromise when it comes to hearing the truth of Jesus when he intersects with things like politics, like commerce, uh, like culture. And what we do is sometimes we just dismiss him with this postmodern notion of what is truth rather than saying, who is truth? He is the truth. Instead, we just kind of dismiss it. But listen, even if my career is threatened, if Jesus is calling me to be honest behind the scenes in the workplace and to follow him, well, then my career doesn't matter in the light of eternity. My comfort may be at risk. He threatens even my idol of comfort. But if Jesus wants me to follow him, then I'm willing to lose my life for him because, listen, I'm not serving an idol, am I? I'm serving the one true living God. So I'm willing to say, yes, Lord, I'll lay this down and I'll follow you. But Jesus will threaten those idols. Thirdly, Jesus will threaten our fun and ignorance. Like the Roman soldiers... We can find ourselves maybe living lives of what we think is freedom, what we think is independence, uh, and and we just are here to have a good time. And so what we do is we kind of turn the gospel uh, or religion or Christianity into kind of a sport. It's kind of a sport that we mock it, we misunderstand it, we abuse Christ, and we completely miss the significance of who Jesus is and what he's done. Maybe that describes you here this morning. Maybe you were brought by a family member or a friend, and you're, you're like, I don't want to be here this morning. I'm here. And to you, the name Jesus is something to mock. It's a punchline. It's a part of a cuss phrase. It's just something that, that means nothing to you. And you find yourself believing that you live a life of great independence, of great freedom. And yet you don't realize that like the Roman soldiers, you serve a cruel taskmaster. The scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That certainly described me before Jesus saved me. I remember I was at Bible, or uh, not Bible college, I was at regular college, uh, not Bible at all, and um, we had this moment where I, I took a Christian fish that it was on the car that I bought, and I remember, some of you know this about me, it was a sad, kind of dark, bleak moment in my life, but my, my roommates and I, we ripped the Christian fish off the car, right? I didn't know Jesus, I was rebelling against him, and we snapped it. And we threw it in the gutter as an act of like rebellion. And I think the Lord was just kind of laughing at that. Like, this is going to be great. I got a good plan for this one. I'm going to make him a pastor. (laughs) He's going to share that story one day. Listen, you think you're just living for yourself for the world. But one day the paycheck's coming. The wages of sin is death. And the paycheck will be eternal separation from God. You cannot claim ignorance when God has revealed himself through creation and through the cross. But Jesus will threaten your sense of fun, your sense of ignorance. But number four, if I haven't stepped on your toes yet, let's go for it. Number four, Jesus threatens our lust for novelty and spectacle. You see, like Herod, I fear that many in the church today, not outside the church, but in the church, are seeking after Jesus to just see him do something sensational. Uh, They don't want to follow a Jesus who lays down his life and invites them to do the same, but no, a Jesus who will do signs, who will do wonders, who will perform miracles, and who will do maybe a little bit of magic. Remember, when Jesus said that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, that would apply. Uh, I'm fearful that Christianity, for many, has become seeking the gift rather than the giver of good gifts, right? Listen, Jesus is not your sugar daddy who wants intimacy from you in exchange for material wealth, okay? He died in your place, and his lordship demands repentance, faith, and obedience. And the cross decimates all lust for the novelty and the spectacle. My wife and I say, what in Jesus isn't enough? If you come to the Lord, what in him is not enough? That we have to look outside and, and, and like here, look for him to do something spectacular. Listen, the changed life transformed by the gospel, eyes being awakened to the truth 
of the Lord, hey, that is a miracle in itself. And that should cause us to rejoice. Whenever anyone comes to saving faith, we should stand in applause because God did a miracle among us. Amen? Well, finally, number five. This is for anyone left who I did not offend today. <laughs> number five, Jesus threatens our rebellion and insurrection. You see, there was one man that day, one man who could say clearly, without even understanding the doctrine of substitution, this man could say that Jesus literally died in his place. Who is that man? That was, of course, Barabbas. Living a life of theft, rebellion, and insurrection. He wanted to do things his way. He, if Sinatra was in, he would have loved that song. I did it my way, which by definition, of course, is lawlessness. What a description of you and me before Christ. Guys, we are Barabbas. We are Bar I am Barabbas. Spurgeon said the great sin of man is his alienation from God. He said in his heart, no God. And in his life, he laboreth to escape from the divine presence. The journey into the far country is not only made for the sake of riotous living, but that he may get away from the father's house. Listen, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. If you've read that and only call it the prodigal son, you've misunderstood it. It's the parable of the prodigal sons. You know why? The son who ran off to rebel against his father ran to rebel through lawlessness. But there was another son who stayed and rebelled against his father through law keeping. Either way, listen, Jesus comes and takes our place. Jesus died for the unrighteous and he died for the self-righteous. Both need to be saved and Jesus threatens this all-powerful kingdom of me. And today, he stands as king. And so I wanna close this morning and invite our worship team forward. And I have a question for you. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do? This is not the moment when you nudge your wife and say, yeah, honey, what will you do with Jesus? You don't nudge the person you brought. This is for you, this is for me. What will you, what will I do with Jesus? I want you for a minute to close your Bibles and just think of this for a minute, get settled. Think of the contrast between these two kingdoms. Think of the contrast. One was a throne that was gained by marrying up. The other was gained by descending, by bowing low and taking the nature of a servant. One king, well, he questioned the very existence of truth. The other king stood as the very embodiment of truth. One king threatened to judge the people through bloodshed. The other king bore the judgment of the people by shedding his own blood. One would wash his hands of all responsibility to demonstrate his indifference and his apathy towards his followers, whereas the other would bend and wash the feet of his followers to demonstrate his willingness to save and serve them. Two kingdoms. And this morning, you and I, like Pilate, have the choice to honor Jesus as king or to sit in judgment on our own borrowed throne. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every ruler, every seat, every throne, every political rule and reign will take the knee to behold the true King. Have you done that? Have you surrendered to the King of Kings? What will you do with Jesus? Today, my pastor's challenge for us is to worship him as king, to behold him as our king. And what does that look like for you this week? It may take on a variety of different forms, but that's my challenge. Worship him as king. He's Lord, and his kingdom will never come to an end. I wanna finish our time together reading a poem by A.B. Simpson. And here's what he says. I'll just read it from the screen. He says, Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken, what meaneth the sudden call? What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Jesus is standing on trial still. You can be false to him if you will. You can be faithful through good or ill. What will you do with Jesus? Will you evade him as Pilate tried? Or will you choose him whatever betide? Vainly you struggle from him to hide. What will you do with Jesus? Will you, like Peter, your Lord, deny? Or will you scorn from his foes to fly? Daring for Jesus to live or die, what will you do with Jesus? May this be our response. Jesus, 
I give thee my heart today. Jesus, I'll follow thee all the way, gladly obeying thee. Will you say, this I will do with Jesus. Amen? Let's bow our heads together. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you've never confessed with your mouth, believe in your heart that Christ is Lord. At the end of our service, when we conclude and people are smiling and greeting and putting their chairs up, I want to specifically invite you to the back of the room. We have some of our staff available to pray with you. Uh, They want to lead you in what it means to know Jesus, to be born again. You need to repent of your sins and trust Christ by faith. Otherwise, the wrath of God remains on you. Today, the wrath of God uh, can be turned from you and be placed upon the Son, but you have to receive him as Lord and Savior. And I want to give you that opportunity at the end as we close, just on your own to make your way to the back. But I want to pray for us as a fellowship. Lord, thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit among us. Thank you for the cross, the willingness, Jesus. How many times did you have the out here, and yet you stayed focused on Calvary? Thank you for doing that for me us. Lord, we glory in your sacrifice, the propitiation for us. Lord, we worship you and behold our King. We behold our God, who is our Lord. We love you. We worship you. We stand together in joy as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and close beholding our God. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.